0: It is world-historically unique degree of cultural omnipresence. And this was already building before the Internet, but the Internet has absolutely supercharged everything, despite what a uh, Portuguese thinker writing in English on an American platform think he might be seeing. Welcome to the
1: More Freedom Foundation podcast. I am your host... Rory McIlhone and joining us to help us through the world of politics and technology is Robert Morris. Uh, hey Rory how's it going? Eh, this week's been going all right uh, it's starting to come to the time of year where when I get home there's still sunlight so that's always nice.
0: Yeah we've got that uh, going on here too which is which is definitely uh, definitely an improvement. So how are things with you? Um I'll be honest uh Rory I'm I'm just you know moderately enraged um I'm I'm I just continue to be gobsmacked by this situation in the Middle East I guess from one perspective you know that of an American patriot like it it's it's you know well we we really can do absolutely anything uh you know what, what was Donald Trump's famous statement that's uh, I could murder somebody on 5th uh, Avenue, Avenue. <laughs> and people still uh, vote for me, well, you know, the United States can murder 30,000 uh, mostly children in Gaza, and uh, and it really appears to change nothing. Um, I've talked a lot about how um, the United States is a lot more powerful uh, than is typically acknowledged, uh, both in the United States and elsewhere. Um, but this is, um, this is about as horrific a confirmation of my thesis as, as I could imagine. It is stunning to me that we are two weeks out uh, from the ICJ uh, issuing a, uh, the International Court of Justice, the highest court in the world, supposedly, uh, issuing a pretty blanket condemnation of what Israel and the United States have been doing. And the response uh, seems to have been uh, by the United States, a little less surprisingly, but quite shockingly followed by a lot of European countries, that the main response has been to pull funding, For the UN agency that's trying to feed the Palestinians, so because one of them might have known someone that did a bad thing once. Well, well, what's what's become been revealed? uh, Because when this initially came out, it sounded kind of plausible. Well, yeah, I I guess it kind of makes sense that people who are committed to feeding Palestinians, there might be some overlap in that organization between folks who are committed to fighting the main murderer of Palestinians, uh, the Israeli uh, state. But it turns out that this was based on essentially nothing, uh, despite the fact that U.S. officials came out and, and vouched for it. Uh, the initial claim was that 12 out of the 13,000 UNRWA employees that uh, work in Gaza, 12 of them may have been involved in the October 7th attacks. Uh, this has been steadily winnowed down to six or four and now there's been a leak of the materials that uh, the U.S. government, the Israeli government, obviously, uh, a collection of European governments used to support uh, their pulling of funding from the only uh, institutions standing in the way of mass extermination of the Palestinian people. And apparently there's nothing there. It, it, it just seems to have been a complete fabrication. And it, it's just it is just st- Stunning. I like I'm I'm a pretty cynical guy, Rory. Right? I've seen a lot of um pretty gross stuff, but it is just stunning.
1: And I think Benjamin Netanyahu's just come out and said, um, give us another couple more months.
0: Yeah. Yeah, to to, to keep doing this, uh committing this horror. And
1: has the- there been militias moving into the West Bank?
0: Uh well the the West Bank isn't something I've studied too closely, but I do know that even though the the Palestinian Authority has been Bending over backwards to work with uh, the Israeli government for the past uh, twenty years now, you know the the, the main focus, uh, even to a higher focus uh, than what they do in Gaza, is has been ethnic cleansing the West Bank. Um, obviously, they can't kill people to quite the same pace that they've been killing people in Gaza in the aftermath of the Hamas attack. But uh, it's it's all just it's all just incredibly dark. Uh, Rory um, and and uh, remember when America used to go to the moon? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> apparently, our main our main interests now are just continuing uh, to uh, bring about horror, savage, savage horror across the Middle East. That, that's the main. It's apparently the highest and best use of U.S. tax dollars. Well, t- speaking of America, I'm
1: very worried about America's place in the world and where it will be in the future because. <laughs> I'm on an American web browser on an American operating system with an American processor, graphics card, and RAM. Talking to you over uh, American recording software, but an above-average kickboxer that's into chess said America is declining, so it must be true. Could you Indeed. please tell us about this decline?
0: Yes. So what we're, we're going to talk about today is one of the main reasons. I would. I was actually had a had a sort of frightening realization this morning that actually that. Intricacies of the, the ownership of one of our tech platforms may actually have a lot to do with just how little we care um, as a society about what's happening uh, in Gaza. But I think on a much broader uh, scale, uh, the Internet, the Internet, how we deal with how we process information in this day and age, day to day, is very much a part of U.S. empire. The internet is u s. Empire, and that's part of the reason why we can commit horrors like this, have it be largely ignored. I, I remember, you know, in october, i was I was quite disturbed by how many folks that I follow um had become so engaged in the Middle East, uh, and I thought in like a in a different way, than I would like. But now it's just, it, what's so disturbing is it's just nobody cares. Nobody nobody talks about this. Nobody looks at, at this in any way. There was a great promise of the internet that it was going to somehow um, democratize information and keep us all better aware of what was going on. The information age, I remember I kept hearing. Indeed, an information superhighway, everything at our fingertips. Um, and honestly, what I've been seeing over the past four months is uh, a great obscuring. It it seems to have, the way that we consume things has made it easier to ignore um, things that we really should be paying attention to as as a country and as a world society. It's I think worth unpacking a little bit. So that's what we're going to talk about today: uh, the, the the extent to which uh, the internet is U.S. empire.
1: Well, I was thinking of uh, how much apparently young people just aren't supporting Israel because of TikTok
0: is <laughs> so one of one of the one of the most interesting ways that uh, folks have been talking about uh this is the i would say the fact that people aren't quite realizing how deeply deeply controlled the media that we that we normally consume uh is um i think the the reason why TikTok and we've discussed this before the reason why TikTok is so um uh, anti-Israel, anti-Palestine, is because of the social media companies has the least mediated approach. In the aftermath of the 2016 elections, Facebook, Google, um, Twitter, all instantiated very large systems and very large political wings, technology wings, uh, just uh, legions of contractors whose job was to police content to some degree. Um, in some ways that were essential, you know, making sure that certain kinds of truly damaging content weren't there and whatnot. But by the very nature of these bureaucracies that were built up, there was political bias uh, that crept in. Uh, certainly, there's a lot of folks in the right wing information ecosphere who, who claim that it's all about canceling and shadow banning people who want to say right wing things. And I, I'm sure that's that's possible to some degree. But uh, I have personally experienced and uh, biased in this, of course. Uh, but for me, the, the massive, massive bias that was introduced uh, to all the social media platforms in the aftermath of 2016 uh, was a pro-U.S. foreign policy bias. And what was interesting is that Facebook and Google and uh, latterly Twitter became much more like the old line, mainstream uh, news sources in the United States that have a sort of party line, uh, pro-U.S. government, pro-Israeli government party line that they hew to uh, very closely. Um, TikTok is still a new platform, a relatively new platform, rather. And TikTok's main goal is eyeballs. Main goal is making you angry or keeping you on the platform. And the other platforms are more solidified, and they don't care about that so much. They're more about getting more money from advertisers. And in that sense, they're less interested in inflammatory, anti-government, anti-established narrative narratives. So TikTok, not because TikTok has any kind of virtue or real love of the Palestinian people, it's because they want to show you the most compelling content. Facebook isn't interested in the most compelling content anymore. And it is really compelling and horrifying um, and just an indicator of just how badly um, our other media platforms are failing us. I find it um,
1: somewhat ironic that I've seen that Israel seems to have, or the IDF seems to have, like essentially like a, a troll farm. They basically have uh-huh. ones that
0: are... Um, it is thus comforting to learn that the IDF employs soldiers whose job titles are new to the military world. The IDF now has soldiers who tweet... Share,
1: like, and more. Spend all day posting, making sure things look good for Israel. And their main thing they're trying to get is to stop mainstream media from basically reporting on them. Because I remember seeing probably one of the most milk toast, like CNN reports you could get on the conflict. And you're still just horrified. <laughs> it's just like, here's the most basic thing that's happening. And you're still like, this is horrific. And they're asking very basic questions to to soldiers and you're getting some insight and it just shows like if this is milk toast covered up as much as possible, what's the true reality? So I think it's funny that we've almost gone so far away from mainstream that we're just seeing like, here's some IDF soldiers boasting about going through somebody's laundry. Like you see some stuff that although it's not necessarily showing gore, it shows such an insight that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And it's the
0: couldn't be further from mainstream media. So you're you're talking about TikTok, the the, yes. the, the yeah. So I mean, the, the, what's what's extraordinary is just the degree to which uh, the Israeli government is not controlling what their soldiers are posting because it, it it's quite horrific. A lot of the content that's turning uh, turning our youngsters against Israel on TikTok is produced by Israeli soldiers who are in some cases documenting their own war crimes and posting them themselves. The thing is that TikTok is interested in being inflammatory, uh, but it's mostly, it, it, it doesn't care about being closer to reality if that reality drives eyeballs. And the reality is horrible and compelling, and it's the failure of most media in the United States and most internet platforms in the United States to show this reality. Uh, a reason why TikTok's coverage uh, of this conflict, as it were, is so much different uh, from that of sort of the the, the mainstream. Um, and what's in what's what's I think inevitable uh, as a result of TikTok's interaction here uh, being kind of the only um, trustworthy would overstate it, but but the only would it be slightly more independent as it does have that Chinese um, influence. Yes, it, it, is, it is more independent of the U.S. party line because of that Chinese influence, but it is also a business and it also makes a lot of money in the United States. So I think it's really only a matter of time before TikTok has to, in response to some kind of congressional inquiry, will set up the same sort of compliance boards and relationships with the Atlantic Council uh, and, and similar uh, types of deals as Facebook and Google had to set up. Um, So this probably the last time TikTok will be useful uh, for a news for a news event. The one that really that sort of struck me this morning uh, was Twitter. And I do think this could be utopian, but I do think if we had the Twitter that we had two years ago, um, it would be harder for the U.S. media environment, uh, the U.S. Internet more broadly to maintain this distortion field, this this fog of unreality where, oh, Israel's acting in self-defense. Do you think it's because uh, people
1: have left Twitter that has meant there's less scrutiny about and it's more more kept more of a a pro-American policy? Or do you think there was a certain
0: thing that was implemented that's ultimately resulted in this? I think it's a combination of factors. I think what folks don't realize is that before Elon Musk. Twitter did kind of function as a global town square. It it was a somewhat unified. It was in in some ways like one of the last vestiges of a realization of uh the dream of the internet that we're going to have this very democratic space where that's top down that that you know where where anybody can reach out and touch the powerful and get them force them to explain themselves. And that really was something that existed on Twitter to some degree. It was shocking and in some cases really humiliating how these famous public figures governments uh, um, politicians felt the need to justify themselves on Twitter most importantly the way that journalism the way that journal I think the New York Times actually at some point said well we don't need a public editor anymore because Twitter does it for us um, does the critiquing and and if the critique was valid and if the critique was shown to be valid through the reinforcement of of being trumpeted by by their folks, um, the institutions in question had to respond. But this is one example. I think with for me, both with my healthcare company and with Amazon, two large faceless bureaucracies that I, I deal with, I had issues that were unresolved for weeks in one case and months in another, going through the proper channels, and all I did was tweet about it um, tagging these, these institutions. And those issues were resolved within 24 hours. Um, obviously it's not, you know, horrible things happened during the age of functioning Twitter, but it was an ongoing ideological battle that had to be had. There had to be people in the United States government, U S think tanks, like justifying what we were doing in Syria, for example, uh, in Yemen, uh, what have you. And I think with Yemen specifically, I think uh, to a large degree, the US government lost that conversation on Twitter. Um, and there had to be really serious um, curtailing of our support for Saudi Arabia's invasion of that country. And I think that was that was really positive. Um, so what happened with Elon Musk was his attitudes towards everything about that platform Drove people off. Uh, there were three dozen people that I you know, consciously checked in with on Twitter, subject matter experts in a variety of things uh, for years. And I'd say roughly 80 percent, if not 95 percent of those people are all gone um, because they don't they're not interested anymore. And he filled the platform with uh, automated garbage, uh, crypto advertisements, uh, the whole treatment of the blue check thing. Basically, if you pay $8 a month, it doesn't matter who you are, but your responses get prioritized. So any figure of any seriousness or, or, or power that has stuck around on Twitter has simply stopped reading any of the replies because it's all just sort of different varieties of Fox News right wing garbage or advertisements for crypto. It's, it's just a less useful platform that fewer people bother to show up for. And nobody takes seriously. Two years ago, um, it was a running joke, but wasn't incorrect that Twitter was basically drove the the agenda for every newsroom left in the country. Well, especially because it was so incredibly useful for journalists. Quite often, they would
1: talk about something as if it was a massive problem, purely because Mm -hmm. it was trending on Twitter.
0: Exactly, and I'm not to say. Do not want to say that Twitter was some sort of utopia uh, beforehand. There were many, many problems. Many of the critiques that Elon Musk and his cronies made uh, uh, when they took over the place were accurate. Uh, but I don't think anyone can deny at this point that they have made the place infinitely worse. Uh, in my more most sort of conspiratorial uh, moments, I, I've, I've questioned, well, you know, Elon Musk is, uh, makes his money from the US military industrial complex. Uh, Tesla's nice, but SpaceX is, you know, a, a rocket ship company that uh, flourishes on the basis of Air Force contracts, among among others, you know NASA contracts, and is it is it so much of a coincidence that one of the biggest beneficiaries of the U.S. military industrial complex uh, just went and destroyed uh, the platform that that was most threatening to creating war war fevers? Um, I mean that, that that that's something that happened. Uh, maybe I'm being overly conspiratorial to to put it in in those terms, and I think we're really seeing that. Uh, with Gaza Uh, I I believe that the information the the, the heartbreaking thing is that the information is still being provided on Twitter you can go there and you can find horrific horrific stuff documentation of horrific stuff reality really but just vastly fewer people are paying attention Um, and importantly the US got neither the US government nor US media feels like it is obligated to pay any attention to Twitter anymore Um, and I you know What was always in my mind is like, well, Elon Musk did this to make to make war over Taiwan easier uh, for the U.S. government to bring about. Um, But uh, I think what what happened here is. um, Do you think he's
1: overcorrected for accidentally liking a pro-Palestinian tweet at one point?
0: Did he ever like a pro-Palestinian tweet? I thought he just liked an anti-Semitic tweet, so he had to go be... Yes, that uh, was it, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so he basically uh, liked a fully anti-Semitic tweet um, and knew that, and this is uh, you know part of the, the, the sickness of U.S. culture, knew that all he had to do to make up for uh, uh, an association with pretty vicious anti-Semitism... Was to go out and be vicious towards uh, the Palestinians uh, to the point where the uh, the current guy running the Jewish Anti Defamation League, uh, a uh, long storied institution in the United States, uh, you know, within two days of his committing this mm-hmm. this you know anti Semitic act, you know, liking a tweet or whatever, um, he had the head of the F- Anti Defamation League uh, congratulating him uh for his anti-Palestinian policies uh that he quickly trotted out. But you can be anti-Semitic and anti-Palestinian. <laughs> not uh not in the U.S. current US discourse. Okay. As long as you're anti-Palestinian, you can be as anti-Semitic as you want. Um and, and the, the real tragedy is that I, I do believe that that um Twitter could have and this is this is an interest this is an interesting dynamic here. When a platform you know, platforms can be designed to provide criticisms of U.S. empire. They can, when they're new, they do have uh, a potentially revolutionary effect. I think we saw this uh, with the Arab Spring in 2011, when when Twitter uh, Twitter was a much newer thing, uh, Facebook was a much newer thing. But what happens is, well, in the Arab Spring, it's worth emphasizing that these platforms played perhaps an exaggerated role, but a role in taking down a whole bunch of pro-American dictators. Over the ensuing decade, a whole bunch of mechanisms and committees and boards and uh, uh, internal policies were put in place to make it much harder for that sort of thing to happen. The Internet is a story of, of great potential that occasionally actually comes to fruition um, in terms of true democratization, true threats to U.S. hegemonic power. But I think that's almost part of the, that's almost how they get you. You know, that's almost part of the, the fact that there's some real promise of real change through this is actually just another way of legitimating what is a tremendous tool of U.S. power. Just like carbon capture is just around the corner, so we don't need to worry about uh, getting off fossil fuels. Yeah, to, to an extent. Yeah, to an extent. I think that's that's very similar. The, I, I think there's a uh, a great place uh, to sort of launch, or at least lo- look into this a little bit more, is uh, a guy who's been uh, kind of, uh, he's sort of the main character of the internet over the past couple of days. And he's an inter- interesting figure. I've followed him um, with great interest since the start of the war in Gaza. And it, it's just this interesting dynamic. He's one of these guys who five months ago I probably would have disagreed with or wouldn't have had much much use for. This is a really interesting dynamic that, that just sort of shows how bad what we're doing in Gaza is. This guy, Bruno Macias, or machias I'm not sure how to, how to pronounce that, well, he's he's his own thing, but there's there's other figures I can think of, like, say, Shadi Amid or there there are other other figures who are usually pretty reliable supporters of U.S. empire, um, you know, really are all behind what the United States is doing in Ukraine, really hate uh, Assad and, and think that we were doing heroic things, creating that civil war. But if you really have any serious knowledge of the region and what is happening in Gaza and you have any like intellectual consistency and, and actually know things, you can't be anything other than appalled. Um, and I think Bruno Massas is, is one of those people. And he's actually a really interesting person to follow because he's quite consistent in being really bothered by what Russia is trying to do to Ukraine and being really bothered by what Netanyahu is trying to do to Palestine, because it's, it is in some very real ways the same thing. Um, it's an attempted at extermination. and yeah, it but is.
1: Ukraine mm-hmm. has like tanks and aircraft and stuff.
0: Like, <laughs> Palestine well, exactly. has um, nothing. Yeah, no question. Uh, there, There's a real fight between Russia and Ukraine, whereas there is not a real fight between Israel and Palestine. It's just an extermination. Um, and, I think they and may and use it, the term
1: asymmetry warfare, asymmetric warfare, where you basically <laughs> completely, because, you know, say the Taliban, for instance, doesn't have air, mm-hmm. aircraft or tanks, you completely overwhelm them. So then, mm-hmm. the only fights you do get are sort of like small arms, because that's all
0: they have, really. But yeah, this is on a whole other level. Yeah, this is, uh, and I, you know, I meant to look into this, but I, I do believe that uh, at this point, um, you know, Israel has killed, depending on how you measure it. Um, if there are measures of casualties for the Afghan war, where if we conclude, you know, include however many people the Taliban killed as well, and how many other militias killed, da, 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 then the numbers are higher, but. In terms of direct uh, slaughter of Afghan civilians by U.S. bombs, um, I do believe that Israel in Gaza has beaten twenty years of U.S. bombing in Afghanistan in in four months. Um, this is this is beyond horrific. Back to Bruno Masai's. This guy became. Uh, the internet's, and it's actually kind of great uh, if this means more people will look at his profile more generally because he's been quite good at drawing attention to Palestine. Um, but he said something pretty spectacularly stupid um, a day or two back um, that I think is kind of a, a, an interesting place to start when talking about U.S. influence in the internet. For the first time in a hundred years, American cultural power is almost non-existent outside U.S. borders. Wow. Not in
1: Canada. <laughs> not in Germany.
0: Yeah. Um, not anywhere. I, American culture and ideas have almost no reach in Dubai, Istanbul, Shanghai, Jakarta, Nairobi, Singapore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it is, the ratio on this is extraordinary. Um, he's got, you know, a couple hundred likes and 1.4 thousand quote tweets. So, yeah, it it, it is extraordinary uh that that folks i think the best tweet in response to that was somebody who pointed out like uh you know the houthis put together a like a video of their attacks on shipping and they used uh the top gun soundtrack <laughs> like <laughs> uh, it, it's yeah. it is just an extraordinary misunderstanding of our historical moment um, no question. Uh, there, are, uh, there is an industry around human rights. There is an industry around good global governance. Uh, there are people who care deeply about the uh, perceived hypocrisy and crimes of the U.S. government. And yeah, uh, Bruno Messias is one of those people, um, is a kind of person who, who's, who's very, very invested in the idea that, that the United States could be or could have been a real defender of human rights. And among those people, no question, uh, U.S. reputation is dirt. Um, but there aren't many of those people, frankly. Um, and almost none of them uh, have any power um, in any government um, outside of, I suppose, Yemen and South Africa. Um, so it, it, it's, it's just the omnipresence of U.S. power is deeply tied uh, to the internet. Well, I've always thought as the internet is is essentially just owned by America. Yeah. Uh, and that, I think that's very true in a lot of ways. Uh, it was invented by the United States, uh, came out of DARPA in the 60s and 70s, um, sort of networked uh, computers. Um, I think the World Wide Web was actually inv- invented in Europe, right? Wasn't it to come out of CERN? Yeah, I think it was a thing for CERN, yes, yeah. to help with that. Mm-hmm. I think that one of the famous internet governance battles that i remember was the the conflict over ICANN, um the internet corporation for assigned names and numbers um this is just sort of the address book uh for the internet uh the the system of databases that underpins everything about the internet and for uh, for a while for for decades frankly there was an ongoing dispute over the fact that this Part of the internet was more or less subject to the United States and U.S. government, su- US government supervision. I think the rest of the world was correct, was correct to be outraged by this and saying that this should be more multilateral. And after years, decades of dispute, the international community got its way, kind of. The organization is still based in the United States, of course. Yeah. But uh, in, in this uh, series of stages between 2009 and 2016, um, a more multilateral board of directors became uh, in charge of ICON and the idea that it was, the, the relationship with the U.S. government was severed, supposedly. Like, this was this big victory, but of course, during that period, 2009 to 2016, we saw the rise of the, I guess the the, the most recent name is, is the Magnificent Seven. You know, they're calling them the, fang and then they were the big five and now i guess the magnificent seven is, is what they're calling but it's just largely you know microsoft apple amazon google facebook now known as meta and Google's now known as alphabet so it's really it's really i think that, that that sort of big five and just the you know finally after decades of trying the international community is like well we've we've got a little bit of a, a, a insight into what some databases set up Meanwhile, uh, some of the largest and most disturbing companies in human history um, have set up. You know, during exactly that period, uh, got to the point where I think those five companies are now larger than the entire Japanese stock index or the entire European stock index. Or it's and yes, just slightly smaller than the Chinese stock index. It's outlandish. Yeah. So we had this tremendous first mover advantage. We remain. The biggest market, uh, essentially for everything. Um, so we get to determine what happens on the internet. The fact that everybody speaks English on the internet, yeah, and it's is kind of, kind is of, sort of important of
1: English first because mm-hmm. I remember seeing how incredibly difficult it was to type in Japanese, you had to like hold down a thing and get a drop down and move a thing across. So, for a very long time, I think that's why emojis uh, uh, stem mm-hmm. from Japan is because if it it's j- every if you weren't just a Latin-based language, it was incredibly difficult to use until
0: recently. And you, you bring up Japan, which is another point that I really uh, think is worth emphasizing, is just the how different the world looks than it did during the 1980s. Um, in the 1980s, technology was a Japan thing, you know, uh, from the U.S. perspective. And the way that the Internet has been leveraged uh, I think it, it made a certain kind of technological sense for the Internet to be the, the the next big thing, networking all these computing devices or what have you. In the 1980s, it, it did seem like some of the most important technology companies were Japanese or European. Um, and that seems like a very far distant past now. Um, it, it is these things are changing. And I think we'll talk more uh, in the next episode about how perhaps these things should change or, or must change. It is quite stunning uh, to just contemplate the, the the extent to which these US companies control the internet and and control the world. Because I think the only big player in Europe really would be ASML, which uh,
1: is mm-hmm. the, the manufacturer that makes the machines that makes the chips that Taiwan is the specialists of. Because I heard th- these machines are so incredible that like a province in in China got a whole load of state money because they had like an old one knocking about and they were so (laughs) excited that they would be able to like, you know, compete with Taiwan with this old machine. So they are incredible pieces of kit. They sound like something like a wizard would use. You're like hitting like, Uh. is it drops of um, nickel with a laser? Like it's Uh. outlandishly crazy stuff. But obviously America is also now wanting them to set up a shop in America with them just like they want um,
0: at TSMC. It's just
1: America basically says you're not allowed to have an advantage.
0: (laughs) That's the Trump move, Trump move, the uh, killing move that the United States uh, undertook with the internet is in the 1980s. I mean, Japan and Germany, uh, of course, ASML is in the Netherlands, but it's it's part of that that same sort of large German uh, tech infrastructure. You know, I think quite arguably or perhaps indisputably uh, have better engineers uh, than the United States. But by making the Internet about these tremendous consumer facing uh, behemoths uh, like the Big Five or or the Magnificent Seven or what have you, um they left the the incredibly technically accomplished Japanese and European engineers in in, in the dust. R was able to just hire them. It well there, there's that too. There's that too. But, but what's key is that consumer facing aspect and that control of information in the aftermath of the 2016 elections and people getting really, uh, government's getting really worried about fake news and maybe, you know, maybe Facebook is the reason that Hillary Clinton lost Donald Trump, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, sorry to interrupt, but
1: it's like everything fine when, uh, Obama was using Facebook to, you know, steal people's data or not. It was a whole Cambridge Analytica before Trump used it. Uh, yeah. uh Obama used it and apparently that's okay.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, when Obama did it, it was savvy and, and fun. Yes, and when, when and forward Trump thinking people did it, down it, it was, with the kids. It, yeah. When, but when Trump did it, it was because it was still kind of a novelty. It still seemed just kind of this strange little thing in 2008 and 2012 before it became uh, so omnipresent. But even before uh, the tremendous crackdown on bad think um, and, you know, any criticism of U.S. foreign policy that we've seen on these platforms in the aftermath of 2016, they were still conveying an American worldview, they were still conveyed just down to the memes, you know, like what was that that Harlem Shake dance move thing? You vaguely recall that, like uh, that was before twenty sixteen, right? I just the the way that the whole world would be force fed U.S. culture, U.S. concerns, U.S. lifestyles in a way that that is utterly unprecedented in human history, and I would argue that's actually. A lot more important than simple censorship of foreign policy criticism that we've seen since 2016. It is it, it, it's it is transformative. I think a lot about the contrast uh, to the British Empire. Um, one of the the best books I've ever read is uh, C. A. Bailey's uh, Birth of the Modern World, um, and he talks about the way that. The British Empire didn't just influence uh, the borders and the wars and the foreign policy, but influenced the way that the elites of every country in the world uh, consumed culture and and dressed sometimes for some occasions. But what's interesting about that and that was the British Empire were was more powerful than any any prior empire, and the reach of their culture and their their politics and their 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 approaches to art and this, that, and the other thing. Um, but it was so incredibly tiny by comparison to what the United States has been capable of throughout the United States' uh, time in power. I mean, long before the internet, uh, Hollywood and television and radio uh, allowed a much deeper infiltration uh, of the mind of every human being um, British Empire was capable of. Um, but after the 1990s and accelerating through the 2000s and the 2010s and into the 2020s, the, the deep colonization of every human mind on the planet through through these little these little empire boxes in all of our pockets um, has been just it's incalculable.
1: I was just going to say how uh, Britain basically seems like it's thrown away one of its uh, key computing partners um arm which uh, i think started off when um uh, acorn were making uh, processors for the bbc micro as the bbc weren't allowed to advertise anyone so they had like their really hmm.
0: standardized computer really um, i didn't know the arm came out of the bbc yeah so oh, that's um, fascinating
1: they made it for you know uh, they uh, made this acorn computing i think it was they made this uh, processor and found out that It didn't need additional power, you know, enough from the computer that it was plugged into. So since it could run on incredibly little amount of electricity, meant it did great for mobile applications. But Britain was happy to have it sold off to the Japanese. And I think, is it um, BlackRock own it now? And someone else maybe owns it. So while America feels like it holds on to its companies like this that are precious, Britain's just like, yeah, go away. We don't need a processor company. Because I think that's where Apple's it used to sort of be closely tied with arm and now they claim their their
0: own thing well i mean arm does chip design right as the there yeah i'm not not familiar uh with the with the the current history of that uh that particular business but yeah they, they, it, it's no question that uh europe is not competing on the same level uh with the united states in these uh in these issues um and it's uh really hard to overestimate the impact of all of these of these dynamics it is it it affects every human being uh, on the planet and it is uh, every smartphone is a vehicle for U.S. ideas U.S. impressions of the world Uh, I you know I've talked many times about uh, how while most people talk about U.S. decline, I'm seeing just U.S. imperial consolidation, or perhaps even U.S. imperial acceleration, and I think it's the smartphone uh, that is the, the 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 greatest driver of this.
1: Well, both operating systems on it are American, both Apple and Android.
0: Yeah, um, and most of the services are as well. Um, you know, TikTok is this big international. Shining example of a of a Chinese company, and uh, the U.S. government and all of these U.S. companies are doing everything they can to destroy oh, it. Oh yeah,
1: they've had to bend over backwards just to be treated like a, a normal app.
0: Um, and it is, uh, but yeah, it's it's the internet that is probably the main uh, the main reason why I see U.S. empire as as accelerating rather than rather than declining, and and it's it's every aspect of it, Rory. Like like the 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 complexity, the depth of these, these technology companies and the ways that the multiple, multiple maneuvers, you already brought up ASML and TSMC, nominally non-U.S. companies that have to bend themselves, tie themselves in knots according to the dictates of the U.S. government. That's a more securitized sort of post-9-11, post-New Cold War thing. But even, even outside of you know, U.S. government mandates, there are so many different ways for the United States, U.S. business, U.S. culture, U.S. society to exert power. One interesting is sort of like the whole, the whole, the whole process of one of these big, of this big consumer-facing technology industry. Like at, at one end, you've got um, investing, in this. And every wealthy person in the world wants to invest in US tech to some degree. They want to be early on the next Google or Amazon. Exactly. And uh, I'm not, I'm in fact pretty sure it's a money losing proposition. But Saudi Arabia, um, the largest, uh, one of the largest pools of money on the planet that theoretically um, could be not much in practice, but in theory could. Be opposed to the United States or could be used to build up Saudi Arabia into a more independent place or could be used to facilitate a switch to to China or, or that sort of hegemony. That big pool of money has spent the past five years Uh, largely being poured into U.S. technology companies. So
1: it does seem like the money America gives it for oil just seems to come back around for tech. So it's like it's able to fund itself.
0: That's been a very conscious uh, deal that the Saudis have had with uh, the U.S. government. Uh, I'm never really explicit since the 70s or 80s, but over the past five years, the sheer scale, just as people have gotten more Worried about the possibility that Saudi Arabia might send that money elsewhere um, Saudi Arabia has been accelerating the amount of money they send to the United States uh, Through technology companies and, and internet companies of, of variations So that's sort of at the very beginning of the process But then look look at the the other end of the process and famously YouTube is huge in India uh, One of my greatest regrets on this channel is that I have not spent more time
1: Talking about India Oh yeah, you'll you'll get Indians quite often, especially when you're looking for tech things. Indian people will be telling you how to work it and get it done right. But yeah, I think it's also just there's so many um Indians and China is not really allowed on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. And well, yeah, India banned TikTok, but they haven't banned YouTube, which is kind of fascinating for a country that's so uh, anti-imperial in its in its orientation. Uh, the the extent to which Obviously, the content of Indian YouTube is largely Indian. Was it a T-series, you know, finally beat out PewDiePie? I remember that was a competition four or five years back. (laughs) A long time ago. It feels like last week to me. I'm in my 40s. Yeah, and of course, it's mostly Indian content, but it is Indian content that is being uploaded to an American platform and is being... Like whole generations of young people in India are being conditioned to what a YouTube content creator is according to American lines. And there are subtle ways that that impacts the way that these creators, these Indian creators and these Indian consumers see the world. Um, And it's always going to be intentionally and unintentionally, vastly more unintentionally. It's going to be channeling people's thinking, people's priorities, people's dreams in American directions. And that is, uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that's always sinister. Uh, I think there are, I think a a kind of one world life and society and government is kind of inevitable. And I'm happy, usually happy, to have the United States shaping that in large part. But when you look at what we're doing in Gaza and the fact that nobody seems to really be able to stop it, doing much about it, yeah, doing much about it or even interested in talking about it anymore, you see the much, much, much darker side of uh, American power. Yeah, well, you the American power over the Internet. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's something worth, uh, worth paying more attention to. We're but
1: also, as we look into the future, the idea that America is anyway dwindling is laughable because um, NVIDIA have new H100 GPUs that are dedicated for AI. And uh, these retail at about 40000 each, which is quite a lot of money. And last year, Microsoft and Meta bought about 150000 of them. Which works out at about six billion. I assume they get a bit of a discount when you're buying that many. But we also there are other companies that are buying around like um fifteen or twenty thousand that are some Chinese and mostly American. But it's just the idea that America is going anywhere. Like AI is obviously the the next big thing, and they're making the chips and the companies are that are buying them are mostly American that will then forefront the internet into the the next decade or two. So. It's just sort of laughable that (laughs) outside of Canada, America has no influence. It's just incredible.
0: Yeah, it it is world historically unique degree of cultural omnipresence. And this, this was already building before the internet, but the internet has absolutely supercharged everything. Uh, despite what a, uh, a Portuguese uh, thinker writing in English on a, an American platform uh, might 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 think he might be seeing, is the world just a uh, one big cargo cult in awe of America and Tommy? Ah, man, I uh, I don't think so. But okay. uh, unfortunately, I think we're uh, unfortunately I think we're we're, we're getting there, um, and it's. Uh, it's honestly it's kind of depressing to me. Like I, I I believed for a long time that that eventually uh the US's crimes were gonna catch up with us and we were gonna, you know, have to start getting smart about how we manage the world. Um, I no longer believe that. Um I, I think uh, I don't think that's gonna happen in my lifetime. Um which does prompt the question, Ray, what exactly are we doing here? Is this this is just the uh, the 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 uh, suck it up and knuckle under the US power podcast. Uh, I'm not sure. Not not sure. I really want to not sure. I really want to run that podcast, but I, I, it's beginning to feel that way. I don't know. It doesn't. But sadly,
1: sometimes that's just what it, it, it seems like. I don't really see many big non-American tech companies challenging much. You know, we hear a lot about TikTok, but I think it's purely because some things that you can see, you know, create a lot more tension than, you know. Something that's just running like a server farm somewhere that might actually have a lot of power. Like um, Amazon makes a lot of its money through its servers that you very rarely hear about. You hear about well, sure. the, the things that the delivery drivers, the shops, the things you can sort of um, see and touch. So, well,
0: yeah, the, the cloud services are this. This, I mean, I think that's the main reason why Amazon is at all profitable. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, it's its best line of business by far. It's driven a lot of its success on on Wall Street, and it's just it just sort of runs along quietly there, and uh, is just a, a part of the the growing growing U.S. empire that none of us uh, none of us can avoid and never will be able to avoid. Uh, and great. occasionally, the EU is able to make the odd phone company use USB-C and And we're grateful for that. I mean, God bless God bless the the, the EU. and it's very occasional uh, uh, stepping up uh, to uh, talk about competition and actually making companies do sensible things. Uh, and that's actually a good segue to to what we'll hopefully be talking about next time, which is the fact that some of these big tech companies uh, really, really, really need to be broken up. And we'll catch you next time. Thank you very much for listening.
1: The More Freedom Foundation is also available on YouTube and TikTok. Rob's Twitter is RobOlaw, and he's also written a book called Avoiding the British Empire, what it was and how the U.S. can do better, and music provided by Kevin MacLeod.